Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. This episode is brought to you in partnership with my good friends over at Boundless Life, very literally one of my favorite programs out there that has evolved from this new movement of digital nomads and expat families is Boundless Life. These guys are changing the game for those of you who want to continue exploring the world, but you've brought some little ones into the world as well and you need to take them along for the ride. They've got education, housing, workspaces, activities, and most importantly, a community of like-minded people who are in a similar situation and just want to keep on exploring. Their locations are set up in some of the most beautiful destinations across Europe, and they are welcoming people for one, three, six, and 12-month programs. So learn more at boundless.life slash chase and get $400 off your journey with them when you let them know that you found them through the About Abroad podcast. Boundless.life slash chase for more information on Boundless Life. My guest today is my new friend, James Asquith. He is the CEO and founder of Holiday Swap, a company and concept that I'm a huge fan of. And what I found extremely interesting about this particular conversation was the way James's personal story ties directly into the origin story of the company that he's built. He was the youngest person to travel to every single country in the world, literally a Guinness world record holder for this. And then he used those experiences and the learnings that he took from his travels to build Holiday Swap. It's the inspiration that drives him to this day. And it was fascinating to see those two things unite. So I really enjoyed this one. I took a lot away from it. I really enjoyed getting to know James on a personal level and appreciated his time. So I think you all will as well. Please help me in welcoming James to About Abroad. Yeah, you know, I was I was doing a little bit of research beforehand. For people listening, they know that I don't really love to do a ton of research before my interviews, especially with people that I haven't met before, which is which is the case here with you and I. Um, but I, I did have to dig into you a little bit, and I was shocked to, to learn. Is it true that you were the youngest person in the world, like an actual Guinness World Record holder for the youngest person in the world to travel to every single country in the world? That is true. Yeah, that's uh, seems like a different lifetime ago now for me. But uh, yeah, that that was me. Wow. Wow. How old were you when you completed the uh, the journey? I was 24 and a bit at the time. And uh, it actually, I think it took about a year and a half for Guinness to actually give me the record, uh, going through everything from receipts and invoices to pictures in front of landmarks. I, I thought passport stamps would just be enough uh, for them to kind of sign off on it. But I guess not. So um, yeah, it, it seemed like a different lifetime ago, honestly. Wow. That's, that's super young too. I mean, that, that seems like it would, you're under 25 years old. It seemed like if I set off on that journey today, it would take me that long to do it. You did it at a young age. Yeah. And you know, it's a lot of people kind of turn around and say, oh, you know, you've traveled the world, you've seen it all now what? And joke saying, maybe go to Mars. And actually there was a time when I was being asked about something to do with that, that went away very quickly. But I, I genuinely feel like I'm just getting started. Um, so, just because you've been to a country and there kind of became this theme of 
ticking off stamps in passports. And, and it was never what I set out to do. Uh, I reckon I'd been to maybe 100 countries by the time I thought, hang on, how many are there? Can I go to them? Has anyone done it? And I think when I did it, it I think more people had been on the moon than to every country in the world on record at the time. And then it kind of became a little bit more, I wouldn't say popular, but people started chasing it a bit more and becoming the youngest X, Y, Z, you know, kind of categorizing it into the youngest person hopping through every border. I, I don't know whatever it could be. And each to their own. But for me, I still feel like I, I certainly didn't and haven't touched the surface of, of going to every country in the world. If you look at the US as an example, right? if going to New York doesn't mean you've been to the US and I think I've been to 34 states or something now, but there's tons of places I still want to see in, in, in the US and any country in, in general. So um, yeah, it, it just really was something that I got a bit carried away with, should we say? And there we were. Yeah, that, I can totally relate to what you're saying on on a much smaller scale, like much, much smaller scale. I get people that will tell me like, oh man, you've traveled so much. You've seen so many places. And the the truth is my, I guess, like style maybe for back, lack of a better word is I, I haven't really seen all that many countries in comparison to to many people, but but I've been deep into many countries, and so you know a handful of countries I've spent multiple you know months years in and really seen some of the nooks and crannies of those countries and really gotten to know the culture really well, and that that's been really fun for me. I think that's the kind of style or the rhythm that I like to go to. But then I see people you know like like yourself and others who have done hundreds of countries and, and spent time in these places in these far off corners of the world that I've only like read about or seen pictures of. And I'm, I'm sort of envious of that. And I, I want to do that as well. So I guess there's to each his own different, different strokes for different folks. But um, yeah, I find that, that cool. I find what you've done yeah. even cooler because when people would ask me and say, hey, you know, tell me about this place or that place. I'm not the expert of anywhere, really. It's, uh, there's some places I know better than others. But as you say, you might have spent weeks and months and even longer in some places get to know the culture. And I find that really cool. And, and I don't think it turned into a little bit of, as I said, this kind of passport stamp chasing from people. And and I think it's become a bit unpopular now, if, if we say that, because I have a lot more, I guess, respect for people that do immerse themselves in a culture. And a lot of that that I did was pre-Instagram and you know pre-people thinking that they could get sponsored for it. And it was really magical in a way. I Six month trips to South America, I reckon I had 50 or 60 photos, you know, in a six month trip. And uh, people have that in the, in the space of an hour sometimes these days. It's, it was kind of, it felt like a bit of a different time. I, I'm almost envious of the time, but I'm certainly envious in some ways of, uh, you know, people getting stuck into to actually getting to know and love a place. There's actually a guy that I know, Thor, and he's been traveling, I think, for eight or so years in one journey, and he hasn't been on a plane in that time. And so, you know, he got stuck during COVID in some of the South Pacific Islands. And he's had to get cargo ships between them because it's not like you can get a cruise ship between some of these places thousands of kilometers apart. And so that's really, to me, I, I look at that and I find that super inspiring rather than maybe someone that nowadays might get a sponsor trip around the world or something. And that's cool, each to their own. Uh, but I, I still kind of find that the real core rustic traveling. And that's cool to me. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by these people too. I, I interviewed a guy on this show last a couple seasons ago. You've probably met these people on your journeys. Like he's one of those people that's figured out a very interesting way to see the world and not just see the world, but like very unique places. So he was spending like six months living in the South Pole in Antarctica. He's like a physician's assistant and he uses this job to get him to like random corners of the world and in, in, in the medical field. And so he was like working on a base down in Antarctica, li- living there. And so his kind of mission is to see these 
far off corners of the world. And he's not doing it as a digital nomad or a sponsored traveler. He's like, or a blogger or something. He's literally in the medical field and using that to get his ticket around the world. And like, I'm, I'm really inspired by those people. That is, that is really cool. I find that awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just fascinating. I mean, you're you're running a, a business now, which we're going to definitely get into, and you can you can you have a vantage point that shows you all these different ways that that people are figuring out their means to to see and explore parts of the world that weren't available to us uh, years ago. It used to be a decision kind of between work and and this adventurous lifestyle, and I guess we're seeing those two blend together now, huh? Exactly. I think that now that people can work a lot more remotely as well, uh, it, it has just opened up a lot of places. And, and I've actually still never been to Antarctica, topping on that note. And so I haven't been to the seventh continent purely because I could never justify the cost of it. And I was working in, in finance and banking at the time. And so I could just, I didn't want to justify not only the cost, but the time of a couple of weeks, I guess, to be able to go down there and see it. And, and even 10 or so years ago, it was a massive cost. And you can even do that more affordably now. Add in the whole remote working side of things. And in some ways, yeah, it, it has, everything's become a lot more accessible. In the early 2000s, I guess, low-cost airlines and budget airlines were the ones that did that and opened the door to it. But uh, now, in many ways, tech and uh, that ability for remote work has taken it to another level. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to get into Holiday Swap with you before we, uh, but, but before we get there, because I think we'll probably end up spending a ton of time on that. Um, I'm super curious to hear more about your origin story as a traveler a little bit, just because if I piece some things together right, it seems like you had a very, what most people would call a successful career going for them early on. And you, and you, did, you were one of those people that kind of had to make a decision between continuing down that path and going in a different path. So I would love if you could kind of connect the dots between your pre-career and early career days and how you made this transition into, okay, now I'm going to go for this. I'm going to go see every country in the world. And then eventually we can get back to, to sort of where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I went into investment banking and started at HSBC straight out of university college. It was something I wanted to do. I kind of got fixated on it, I guess, when I was maybe 16 years old or 17. Uh, I, I had a teacher at school who used to be a, a trader and investment banker and it looked really cool. And uh, I remember he came in with a bunch of guys from Merrill Lynch with the squeezy bulls that were their kind of mascot logo. And a bunch of my friends cut the bull's ear off and one of his legs and it really upset me at the time. But I remember looking at that thinking, you know, what, I want to be in investment banking. And uh, it just seemed cool to me. So I went straight into that in the middle of the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, even the first couple of days saw a lot of people losing jobs. And it, it was crazy at the time. And I had no idea what I was doing. But I was chucked in at the deep end and uh, opportunities, I guess, came my way um, quite nicely. But a lot of the stereotypes, we say, of the industry are very much true. And uh, it's difficult to walk away from because, yeah, the money can be good and it, it's maybe not so much so now, and I'd never tell someone to do or not to do a job, but uh, it's it's a difficult one to. But I was doing it for a while, and I was managing a you know, pretty big portfolio at a young age, and got headhunted a couple of times by a couple of banks, and, and went up the, the chain, I guess, quick. But it got to a point. I, I always remember a conversation I had with a guy, and I must have been twenty three, twenty four at the time. And I had a great first boss. He said he'd cover me if I just you know kept going and went to every country in the world, which began to become an ambition as I went into this job and I was paying off credit card debt from the travels when I was at university. And he said, look, just go do it. I'll cover you as much as I can. And you never really hear that in investment banking because it's you're tied to your desk, especially as a young junior guy. 
Um, I, the, the respect I have for this guy, Rob, he was my first boss, is insane. And he was actually jumping ahead the first investor in the company who just formed such a strong bond. But kind of skipping back to it, uh, he was a big part of being able to do that. But I remember this conversation with this random guy who came up and said, James, what you've done is inspiring traveling to all these countries. And I didn't really think it was at the time. I was just doing my own thing. And he said, what the hell are you doing sitting at a desk in an investment bank? Uh, and I said, I love this. I love what it is. And I genuinely did. He said, just you know, make a bit of money and get out and do something travel. And the issue I had was I didn't have the idea of what to do in travel. And I think that too many people make that mistake now. Of And we get told it online and on the internet that everyone can be a successful entrepreneur and you know, everyone can hit their dreams. The harsh reality is that's just not the case. And I didn't want to fall into that trap. And it took me a couple of years until I actually had an idea that I turned around and said, you know what, light bulb moment, that's something that I can walk away from banking tomorrow. And I did. And set up this company and stick with it until the end, through the difficult times, you know, through the crap that's thrown at you, which, again, a lot of people give up. And it, it gets so tough that you need to stick with saying that you're not turning back from. So I knew it had to be that, and not just, hey, I want to do this and have this life. And it's not a glamorous life at all. Founding a company and being a CEO, it's pretty it's seven day weeks for the last four or five years and 18 hour days, sometimes more, all sorts of time zones. And I love it, but it's not for most people. And I think that that's sometimes the advice that people need to hear is there's no problem waiting to do it until you have something you're not going to turn back from. Because, you know, unfortunately, all these motivational speakers, and I say that in inverted commas online, saying, you know, don't sit in a miserable job, go do what you want to do. But actually, I think that's really poor advice. I think better advice is sometimes you have to sit there and graft to have the ability to do what you want to do, not only because you've got the right idea, but because you've got the, the comfort, confidence, whether that's financially uh, or in a strong kind of, you know, you've got enough runway of capital, should we say, to be able to stick with the business or whatever it is you want to do through those tough times. So I certainly waited until the time was right and uh, you know, walked away from banking. And I was pretty senior as an executive director at a bank at that time, still in my late 20s. And um, you know, some people would think it was crazy, but I, I had this idea. I wanted to actually make travel cheaper and more affordable. And so before then, yeah, I was getting asked by the press and the media. And, and it was kind of snowballing with the world record of, of people saying, hey, how do you travel so much? We'd love to do it too. How can we travel cheaper? And I actually used to trade the, the bonds and the, the debt of a lot of the travel companies and the travel sector, the airlines, the aircraft manufacturers, the likes of Expedia, and all of these guys. So because I was uh, you know, FCA registered, I couldn't say anything because it would be a conflict of interest. So I was just sat there with my mouth shut for a couple of years. at the media knocking on the door asking, and I couldn't do anything. And I said, you know, I want to be able to use that, but actually be able to answer the question, say, hey, this is how you can do it cheaper. And when I had the idea, I just kind of walked away the next day and said, this is, this is what I'm doing, starting holiday swap. <laughs> that's fascinating, man. I, that's such a cool story to see how the, those, those dots can be connected. Yeah, you know what I find is, is, is super interesting is pe when people do actually use their quote unquote boring job, let's just call it that, you know, people who have gone into accounting or investment banking or being the doctor, or the, the physician's assistant, you know, the, the traditional jobs that, that we all think we're going to go get. And then they use that to parlay it 
into some form of adventurous lifestyle like you've done. I've, I think a lot of people can connect with that because they've gone through their the early stages of their life thinking this is what they're going to have to do. And I I don't even know that they're doing it begrudgingly. Um, I, I also, for instance, I also went studied in finance and went into that finance insurance and, and this sort of world thinking like I wasn't disliking it at all at the time. It just, but it also wasn't my my dream life. I mean, I knew I wanted to travel and explore and do other things, but I just didn't really think that was possible. And then to see some of those skills, connections, and learnings that I had from that chapter of life progress into what I'm able to do today, it's kind of it's it's pretty awesome to connect those dots. And I think actually this is one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast and tell the stories of people like yourself because that can be inspiring for people who are sitting there at their day job right now, listening to this and going, "Okay, cool. I can I can take this and I can utilize it to to go off and do the things that I truly want to do." Yeah. And, and I think that actually one of the, which sounds really harsh and kind of negative on the surface, but I think one of the best pieces of advice that a lot of people can hear is that you're not extraordinary. <laughs> and I know that sounds a bit odd to say. Everyone is at some point, but there's too much you know, content online of these, as I say, these mastermind, they're getting paid for some course or whatever it is to promote it. And being sold a dream of you know becoming a millionaire and a multimillionaire or a billionaire from NFTs or crypto or join my mastermind course and you're going to get absolutely no new information that's not already everywhere online and quit your boring job and do this or whether it's in real estate saying you know you can put zero percent down and everyone can be a landlord and everyone can make money but the reality is from a mental health perspective that is so unhealthy for most people who might be sitting there reasonably content with their life, whether it's in insurance or whether they're in legal or whether they work in McDonald's or whether they work in a bar like I did, or I worked in a balloon shop to start with blowing up balloons. And I was an idiot. I didn't even know how to use the pump. So I'm sat there blowing up all these big balloons manually. But you know what? I did it with a smile on my face and I was pretty happy. And once you get to a point where you get kind of brainwashed to thinking that you're a failure by doing that and that you can do so much more, you're chasing this this dream that for a lot of people isn't there and, and it, it crushes you and you might lose the best years of your life in your 20s and 30s by chasing something or you know even in your 50s, 60s. But once you have that amazing dream and ambition, then you maybe want to go and deal with it. And you know, I'm allowed to swear, right? Yeah, yeah, go for yeah, it. You Be know, yourself. Just, <laughs> you know, just, just so much shit is going to get thrown at you when you're trying to do something by yourself or have this dream and ambition that it does break a lot of people. Whereas some of the happiest people I know just do sink humbly. Actually, you know what? I'll tell you an example. There's a guy that I know in Geneva. And I remember we were having some drinks. This was maybe six months ago. And, and there were just these, these couple of Americans who thought they were billionaires in real estate owning half of Miami Beach, sitting there just being arrogant. And my buddy is the nicest guy. He comes along. I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. And he's got this big smile on his face. He says, James, I've finally done it. And I said, what? And he goes, I finally quit. I've started up my own driving instructor school. He always wanted to teach people and be a driving instructor. So he got his car modified. He got two sets of pedals, et cetera. And uh, these these guys, these American guys were like, is that it? Like, are you going to expand? Are you going to buy more cars and hire people and turn it into a big business? He said, no. Like at the moment, you know, I make money. I pay the bills. I'm really happy. I'm teaching people. And they kind of looked down on him. And I said, do you know what? This guy's probably a lot happier than you. He's done something and followed his dream. It doesn't, not everything has to be this, you know, global business. And, and it's a bit, again, hyper, you know, hypocritical, should we say, that I'm saying that because I guess what, what we've built and what we have to build at Holiday Swap is really quite global. But 
I didn't do it until that idea really hit me like a light bulb. And so for so many people, I think that the happiness is actually maybe doing what you're doing. And, and every day at your work, if you're, as you say, like in insurance, may not be the happiest day. Sometimes you do go in and you make a salary and you pay the bills, but you work towards something, whether it's that vacation or, you know, whether it's going and doing something really nice on the weekend. But not everyone can be spectacular and extraordinary on paper like we're told to now. But actually in yourself, that is pretty extraordinary and spectacular because just doing your thing, I have so much respect for. And honestly, I have a lot more respect for people that do that and do a career job than someone that's turning around talking about their NFT collection or something. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I think like, uh, I don't know if this makes me old or something, but I mean, the Instagram age of doing everything for, for you know, doing it for the gram and showing pictures of where you're, you're traveling to or how successful you are, I think is so toxic for our mental health as you, you know, you already alluded to. And that, that story of your friend with the driving school reminds me, have you, have you ever heard of this? It, there's like a kind of like a parable or something. It's about the Mexican fishermen. Have you heard this? I think so, but but please go. Yeah. I mean, so it's it's kind of the exact same story. It's like, and oddly enough, it's uh, the antagonist in the story is uh, is an American businessman as well. So I guess we really are a holes. Um, but uh, <laughs> so anyway, the basically it's like this this Mexican fisherman sitting there, and every day he, he's on the beach, and this American businessman is there, and he's like, "Oh, what do you do?" And he's like, "Oh, I, every day I go out and I I go fishing with my friends. We catch a few fish, and we come in, and then I spend the rest of my day." you know, hanging out with my kids, playing the guitar and, and, you know, having a beer on the beach with my family and friends. And the guy's like, oh, well, you know, do you, do, are you planning on expanding? And he's like, well, why would I expand? He's like, well, here's what you need to do. You, you need to, uh, you need to buy a fleet of boats. Um, you can take out a loan mm -hmm. to do that. My, my bank will offer it to you. You can take out a loan. You can expand your fleet. You know, you'll have to work really hard for like 20 years and take on a lot of debt. And and so anyway, they go back and forth through these series of questions about what it would look like. And then the, the guy gets to the Mexican guy gets to the end and goes, okay, but what, what will it look like in the end? And he goes, well, in the end, you can retire, you can hang out on the beach, play with your kids and uh, have a beer and play the guitar with your, your buddies on the beach. <laughs> it's and like, then you're old. he's already there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then you're old. Yeah. It, it reminds me so much of being in Tonga as well. Exactly the same. In Tonga, like people are just sitting there in their front lawns, everything. You you accidentally drop like a, a pip from an apple and it will probably be an apple tree a couple of days later. Obviously, that's an exaggeration. But, you know, they've got all of this amazing fruit that they need. They've got all the fish in the sea that they're living the life. And everyone there will say it and they're all smiling and it's it's fantastic. And it's it's about your your perception and your opinion of what you want in terms of that and, and that success. And I think that we're driven too much to see that we should be doing something. And, you know, that's the, the great thing and the problem, as you, as you say, like it was an American a-hole again, but it's the, the, the great thing and the problem, I guess, with the American dream is that it encourages you to do it, but then it does work towards, oh, then you can kind of happily retire and enjoy it. And, and I do also remember when I was working in banking, one of my friends from the US came and moved to London for a bit for his job and, and moved in with, and there's not one that's necessarily better than the other, but there's such a love affair between Americans coming to London and the UK and vice versa. British people love going to the US. And I think that the issue is so many Americans that I know that come and move to the UK sit there and love it to start with because, again, it is so nine to five, 5 p.m. comes. It doesn't matter kind of what career job or how successful you are. It's almost like down tools. That's it. If, assuming you work in an office and, and you go to the pub and have a beer. And that's kind of quite unheard of in many places, particularly in, 
New York's or San Francisco's of the US where it's just work harder and harder to get up. And there isn't that in, in, in the UK. So it's great to start with and you don't kind of have your just strict two weeks vacation a year. But then when it becomes apparent that that really is life, Monday to Friday, nine to five, have some beers and there's not really any career progression from it. In a lot of instances, it's the longer you work, maybe you get a promotion. And so there's a lot more kind of career drive, I think, in Americans than wanting to, to, to have that. So it lasts for a bit and then it wears off. And then the same in, you know, from British people going to the US is that anything and everything seems possible. And that's not the British mentality. The British mentality is more, you know, you come and turn around and say, hey, I want to build this fleet of, of fishermen boats you'll get told in the UK, well, you'll never be able to do that. Just, you know, settle down. Just don't don't even bother. You'll never succeed. And so neither is better than the other, but it kind of shows the differing, I guess, more leftist social side of Europe versus the more we can do anything and everything in, in the US. So um, maybe there's more of a middle ground. I think that, again, tech and social media amplify people thinking that they are, should be doing something that necessarily they shouldn't it should be everyone to just be comfortable and not think hey i'm missing out on this because i see someone that looks apparently successful yeah <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that that love affair with with crisscrossing the atlantic there i i admit when i mentioned that i stayed in the finance and insurance space it was literally the only thing that kept me there was because there was this tight affiliation and opportunity to work with a company that worked with lloyds of london in London and I was very attracted to just exactly that. <laughs> and I my my first time going to London in this space, I remember we went out and we had it was just completely mind-blowing to me that we had beers and and wine throughout lunch. And then at the end, like went back to Lloyd's and and were like people were signing off on on giant, you know, million dollar policies and stuff. And it was just it was just mind blowing to me as coming from the more like kind of stiff American menta- business mentality. I absolutely loved it. So that love affair is uh, absolutely true. <laughs> nice, and it's an amazing office as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's 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 spectacular. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, like I said, I didn't dislike that time, that that chapter of my life at all. I mean, it, it was actually a lot of fun for what it was. But moving on to a bit more adventurous, getting out of the New Yorks and Londons of the world and into the Tongas seemed seemed a bit more exciting. <laughs> I think it's as Baz Luhrmann said. He said, you know. Living New York once, living California yeah. once. Yeah, there's a good life to be had there, at least for for some and for a while. I think it's really interesting you brought up that, you mentioned the American dream. And I always, I kind of wonder about that sometimes, like coming from the, the British mentality and like you've obviously had a successful career and you've you've been in, you know, deep into the finance and economics world. I mean, what do you think when you hear that, the the American dream, does that... Does that seem valid anymore to you or, or is it is it just something that people throw around? Is there something unique about the US? Because I, I asked for two reasons. One, because of your background, obviously. Two, I also saw somewhere where you you really enjoyed, of all the countries in the world that you've seen, the US is is one of the ones that sounds like you have an affinity for. So just just curious to hear about your perspective on the US. I think it's always a... I'm obviously American, but it's always a polarizing country in a lot of ways. And you get people who have very strong opinions one way or the other. It's constantly in the media, no matter where you go. Yeah. So I don't know, just be curious to get your perspective. 
This episode is brought to you by my good friends over at Greenback Tax. As an American citizen, I'm from one of only two countries in the entire world that requires I pay taxes on my global income, regardless of which country I'm actually living in. So when I started my expat journey back in 2015, I knew my tax situation was about to get complicated. Fortunately, I discovered Greenback and I've never looked back. Greenback is 100% focused on helping U.S. expats with their tax situation. And to date, they've filed almost 50,000 returns for nearly 15,000 happy customers from more than 200 different countries. After seven years working together, I can say with confidence that they make one of the most painful parts of life abroad an absolute breeze with their automated systems, friendly advisors, and expertise in the very specific niche of U.S. expat taxes. Also, for those of you who may have fallen behind on your taxes and or you're trying to get ahead of tax season in 2023, Greenback has your back here as well. They can assist with late filings to ensure you don't encounter any problems with the IRS and to make sure you start 2023 off right. Tax season is on the horizon. Learn more about Greenback today by going to greenbacktaxservices.com via the link in the show notes. Hey guys, if you're still around and enjoying this episode, then I think you might actually like our once a month newsletter as well. If you'd like to sign up, just open up the show notes of the episode you're currently listening to, scroll down and look for aboutabroad.com slash newsletter. It takes about 30 seconds to sign up. It's a fantastic way to support the show. And I think you'll be pleased with the information that we provide every month as well. Thanks a lot for listening. Hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, well, it's a funny one. I try not to talk about politics and religion as, as two things, but uh, I spend a lot more time in the US than I do in, in the UK now, for sure. Um, but the odd thing about that is if I was to be in a bar or a restaurant and have a strong opinion on something, the very instant reaction in the US and kind of US first is, oh, you know, if you don't, when they hear my accent is, well, if you don't like it, leave. And the reality is it's a country built on immigrants. Everyone's an immigrant in the US. And that's a great thing. That's what makes the country fantastic. But then, you know, it shouldn't be a right that someone gets to say this, this country's great or this country's bad, depending on who's in the White House or who is there. And, and a country doesn't turn bad or great in four years when it kind of flips between either side, should we say. So I think that the whole thing and the whole concept in the US is based on America's great because the American dream is there. Anything is possible. Anyone can make it. But I do feel like it's an aged dream in many ways and one that isn't as relevant now. And I think that technology's kind of poisoned it a little bit to the point where it's become unhealthy at this stage in many ways. And Again, I love the US so much because of the diversity in one country. You know, if you look at maybe Brazil, for example, it's beach, it's rainforest, the culture is very similar throughout the country. Whereas the differences between Hawaii or Alaska or, you know, somewhere like Colorado, or Utah, which are beautiful, and then the coasts from California to New York and everything in between, the diversity is fantastic. But without kind of going too deeply into it, I think that the American dream in itself is uh, is something that is is struggling. And again, it's it's no better necessarily. I sound like such a pessimist. I don't think it's any better in the UK. Uh, you know, it's a it's a massive state there. But yeah, sometimes I, I do feel like social media is a massive blame to a lot of this, where the kind of someone being happy and content in what they do may not be enough in society's eyes anymore. And there's a lot of kind of judgment to that. I'm part Greek and I go to Greece and you see someone that's for the last 30, 40 years worked in their taverna and their restaurant and they love it. And they're just, you know, they're doing their thing. And you, you turn around and say, wow, this is such a great spot. And I have respect for that when I see it. And I, I'm almost like, you know, bowing down, hallowed turf. I'm like you have such a great spot here. It's, it's almost a, a, an honor for me to be there. And 
I feel like in in some places of the world, uh, it might not be seen as enough anymore. And, and I think that's kind of a shame. Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting point about how the, the changing landscape of work is, is sort of a, like a shot in the foot in a way in the US. Like it's interesting. It's an interesting paradox, right? Because Silicon Valley is like the birthplace of tech in a lot of ways. And you have all the, the major tech companies being based there. And then at the same time, you have this technological revolution where you know remote work is becoming the new norm and for those knowledge workers out there. And, and so it's decentralizing that and and the US has been sort of at the heart of the economy with with in, in that sense with Silicon Valley being at the heart of the national economy in that way. And so now that decentralization is sort of like uh it's it's changing it very quickly. And I don't know, it's gonna be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, that's the democratization of opportunity and, and people across the world having access to the same types of jobs that once were only centralized in those in those few places. So yeah, I'm, I'm personally curious to, to see how it's going to play out over time. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, and again, try not to get into politics. I don't think that the policy of any one country first is beneficial, even to a country that might be kind of top of a leaderboard, if you wanted to rate it like that. I've always been an advocate for globalization. I've always been an advocate for the ability for people that want to prove it or go and do whatever it might be to be able to do that. And, you know, in a way that, and again, without going into, does that mean open borders or saying, and again, there's many problems with that, why that wouldn't be the case. I'm not suggesting that. But the illustration you could play on is, for example, in the UK and the UK leaving the EU. And even as of today, with elections in Italy, it looks like Italy is now making a very big push to leave the EU as well. And it really does look like an accelerated deconstruction of the European Union. And it's taken actually a very big move towards that as of today, which didn't seem possible a couple of years ago. And yet, you know, you can look at the EU as the US, for example. It doesn't, the the EU sticking together or one country wanting more control over X, Y, Z policies, whether it's monetary, fiscal, whatever it might be, isn't good. Like, you know, global trade and globalization is something that allows everyone to push together more. And the EU just cutting itself off and saying, we are big, we're flexing our muscles, same as the US, isn't necessarily right. But I do very much feel kind of the the better together and the openness and the globalization is so much more beneficial for developing countries and for countries themselves that are able to kind of construct that. Having individual country agreements and trade, I know the UK is now trying to put a bigger trade agreement together with the US because it needs to, because it's now literally turned into exactly what it is, which is a little small island, you know, by itself, just kind of sitting there in, in the Atlantic. It's not going to work for, for that in itself. And, and again, I've, I think this is probably the most I've ever talked about policy or politics or anything to, to, in any any kind of chat I've ever had. I, I, I know I said I tried not to, and then I just dived into it. But it's it's crazy how it's more relevant than ever. Well, I'm sorry. I, I dragged you down that path and I didn't intend to either. So I, I won't keep you there for too long. I think it's interesting. There's this analogy that I heard totally unrelated to politics and global economics, but sort of it works. Like there's this concept that's like you can build your... If you're, if you're a house in a neighborhood, you're building the biggest mansion in the neighborhood, but the neighborhood around you is being deteriorated because you're building this giant mansion, then you know that doesn't do... What's that going to do to your property value over time? So 
this is the the idea that you know we should be thinking more globally in general and how we can you know help raise the elevate the betterment of the planet not just our individual countries or cities or or in this case you know the the mansion in the neighborhood so hopefully more people will will be thinking that maybe it's you know i mean I, travel is one of the best forms of education in the world you've had the ability to see obviously every single country in the world so maybe your perspective that experience changes your perspective. Whereas like a lot of our compatriots haven't had the chance to even leave their postal code or, uh, or or certainly the country. I know people love to throw out the stat to me. There's some percentage, like what is it? 30% of Americans don't have passports, you know, and you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I never really know how true that is or whatnot, but. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I, travel was 100% the best education that I ever had. And after my first year, I, I didn't turn up to a single lecture or class again at uh, a university studying maths and economics. I just came back for the exams and slept on a beanbag to catch up on the year. And, and when I say I slept in the library, I, I literally slept in the library. I had a beanbag and I, there was a shower there and a little bag and was you know essentially homeless because I'd got rid of my, my rental on my apartment to go travel the world instead. And I remember my second year, I'd gone traveling with my best friends to Southeast Asia and we did some volunteering, building some homes in Vietnam. And I never thought I'd pick up the travel bug. And I, I can literally picture it today, this shop in London where I bought the backpack from and these guys in the store saying, oh, you'll get this one because you'll, you'll, you'll pick up the travel bug, you'll love it and this will last you for years. And I was thinking, yeah, whatever, you know, this is a one-off trip. I'm going to Southeast Asia, having a bit of fun, doing some good stuff, volunteering. And I, I came back from that trip and I was desperate to travel again. And I remember my first lecture of my second year, everyone around me saying, hey, are we going to go to this bar and do that? And I had a great first year. I did everything that you, you know, you think you'd do in your first year and just have fun and was a bit of an idiot. And I remember closing up my book and just saying, no, I'm not doing this again in my second year. It really did. Studying maths and economics really didn't teach me anything that I have ever used in the real world. Now, when I studied it, when I was kind of between 16 to 18, it's almost more simplified. But but I mean, the, the more simple stuff, but it is actually applicable to the real world. And I felt like the smartest I ever was on paper in a book was when I was kind of 17 or 18 years old, when I was learning more basic principles of, of, of economics, for example, but actually what a change in interest rates does. And you, people see interest rates going up at the moment. And the only related aspect it might have to people is, what it might mean for their mortgage payments, for example, but without understanding what that does to the wider macroeconomic situation, which is actually kind of relatively simple to understand. But I had a better grasp of it when I was 17 or 18, rather than studying at, you know, one of the top universities for economics, doing it from 18 onwards, where it didn't teach me anything that was really real world applicable. It was just how hard can we make it to prove that someone's really smart so they get a job on paper. And so I, I, kind of ran away from that and did the travel thing. And I was thinking, this is teaching me so much more. So didn't turn up again. And then was this kind of homeless library dude. I love how you go from a homeless guy in a beanbag in the library to running a global tech company and traveling to every country in the world. That is quite the jump from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I, I would love to... So I would love to dive into Holiday Swap a little bit and just talk about like, like, what was the quick origin story? And then also, or maybe let's preface it with what Holiday Swap does and then revert back to the origin story because I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Holiday Swap is, is just almost, let's call it the travel Tinder, but instead of your face, it's your home and people exchange homes. So the biggest cost of travel is accommodation. Even if you rent your home, 
exchanging it without kind of making money on that Airbnb and whatever website, I forget the name, is called. Uh, you know, we're very different to that because it's really a community and a network and user to user where you stay at mine and I stay at yours. And it's it's really as simple as that. So, you know, we've, we've had a pretty interesting run even during COVID. We were able to grow and kind of focus, I guess, more on people traveling domestically or regionally and maybe someone swapping the city with the countryside, for example, and, and moving around within them to get a change of scenery or people that are working remotely. But whether it's an asset or a liability, your apartment, your house, your villa, your spare bedroom, whichever one it is, is is really the kind of the biggest overhead that, that most of us will have. So why not be flexible using it? And that's really what, what all of this does. And, you know, the origins kind of relate to that. I, I was in a place called Cluj-Napoca. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but I'd never heard of it. And this was after I'd been to every country. And I remember with one of my good friends, we booked a 10 euro flight there from London on Wizz Air. Less said about them, the better, but at least they open up a lot of countries cheaply. So we were there and, and as my friends like to do in annoying situations, they'll be like, yeah, this guy's been to every country. And I get the same questions. What's your favorite, et cetera. And, you know, I'm, I'm unofficially an ambassador for travel and I'm more than happy to always answer it and be as positive as I can because obviously, yeah, people want to travel more and, and amazed by it. So I remember this group of people in, in Cluj, which was voted the European youth capital of the world. It's in Transylvania and Romania. Again, I've never heard of it. I loved this city, though. It was so cool. And the European youth capital, they've got a bunch of colleges there and people are really outgoing and want to travel. And this group of people that my friend said, this guy's been to every country. Uh, there's particularly in Eastern Europe, there's an obsession with people wanting to come to London and like you know, the royal family, etc. We'd love to go, but we can't afford it. And my instant reaction is, of course you can. You know, we flew here for just 10 euros on a two and a half hour flight. It's, it's affordable. You can do it. And they all said the same thing. They said, it's not the flights, it's the accommodation. Even a shared hostel in a shared dormitory in central London is going to put you back $50, $60 a night, which is, you know, a big, big financial cost for a shared dormitory. And I remember sitting there in that moment and I, I joked, I said, well, look, you know, I, I live in a, a decent place in London at the moment. I'm not there. I'm here and I'm definitely coming back here. So next time I am, you can stay at mine in London. And they're like, can we take you up on that? And I was like, yeah, sure. Flying back to London the next day, looking out the window and I was like, hang on, light bulb moment. Next day I set up holiday swap and there was no looking back. I thought, look, actually people being able to kind of almost like a couch surfing on steroids or a much cheaper version of Airbnb thing. It, that's what we wanted to do. And we, we said, everyone can and should be using this, even if you don't necessarily go and say, right, type in, I want to go to New York on these dates. What's the cost? Filter by three-star, four-star hotel. What's the price? It might just be a case of you go on holiday swap and you've got your community of somewhere that you know you can stay in Sydney and Bangkok and Tokyo and London, Paris, Madrid. Miami, etc. And you might go there in six months or in two years. And it's just kind of always gives you that place that you know you can kind of go and stay. And liquidity in the in the home market is is really what we do. And it's been quite a ride. It's such a cool story. I, I'm such a massive fan of this concept. Anything that we can do to lower the barrier to entry for, for people that want to travel and finances are normally the main blocker for people that have that desire. Uh, anything we can do to lower that barrier is is something I'm a huge fan of. And I've done some some swaps in the past and used, you know, I've used like various platforms for different things like trusted house sitters, for example, to bring people to watch my dog while I'm traveling and they get to stay in my home for free and I don't have to pay for pet sitting, which is like 
Yeah, it's it's such a crazy. When I was living, I've gotten spoiled by Spain prices now in this regard. But like, there was a time I think I was living in Miami at the time. I remember having to pay seventy dollars a day for my dog to be watched. I mean, if you're gone for ten days, seven hundred bucks like that's that's insane. And so you know, using platforms like that, platforms like Holiday Swap to exchange homes, so everybody's winning. You're not spending any extra. You're getting to stay in somebody's house. You know, there's a mutual interest in. And respecting each other's homes. Yeah, I mean, this is this is you know, car people are doing this with with vehicles now as well. I mean, there's some tools out there, and it's it's very cool to learn about Holiday Swap. So, how when did you guys start exactly? How long has it been around? Uh, it's been around four years now. So, um, yeah, it's it's and, and again, at the start, it's a case of having to really build and just have more and more homes, and and people kind of trust us and see that platform growing is is the key thing because. To, to be kind of at a point that I guess was critical mass, you need to be global. It's not really like we could go and start up in one country and be successful because the, the problem, and this kind of almost comes back to tech and social media and the bigger giants, I guess, even from Silicon Valley is you know, most people that are grafting hard with a startup and are a founder, it, eventually they've got so many no's and doors closing that once there is that element of success, they quickly get bought and mocked up. I mean, even look at it with Instagram, with Facebook buying them, and Instagram is arguably much more successful and bigger than, than Facebook in many ways now. But, uh, you know, that was just a couple of guys that started that. They got taken out for a billion dollars, which is very cheap now looking at it relatively. And so the problem you have with a lot of things that are successful that are difficult to really kind of jump to being, I guess, global, is that as soon as they show that traction success, they do get taken out. And most people are kind of motivated by, okay, I can succeed with that and start up another company whereas i think for 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 us and the team it's really we're taking this all the way to the end and from the couple of people that have approached us to buy us in the past it's not really been my objective and i think that kind of i guess the past life in investment banking it is nice to have given me that because i was able to self-fund the company to start with then we got investors in at a certain stage but money's never been the motivator for me it's it's not you know i don't need to or want to have a big amount of my bank account and sit on a beach. You know, right now, for example, I'm, I'm, without trying to show off, I'm working remotely looking out the sunset in the Maldives. Um, I've got a couple of days here, but it's the perfect life for me. Yeah, sure. It's still 17, 18 hour days, most days. It's crazy weird times with people in Australia and the US and I love it. And it's not for everyone. It is for people if you have that true passion, but it's because we know where we want to take this. And it's not a case of I'm sitting here waiting for the phone to go and someone say, right, we're going to put a few zeros in your bank account move aside, we're going to take over a successful concept. We're really doing something here that I think makes a difference and and adds value to people and saves them money and solves a problem that there's no reason why, uh, you know, we want to do that. So I think that the path, and, and actually on that note, it, some, someone actually asked me the other day, who was trying to raise capital for their business. They said, you know, James, how did you do it with, with Holiday Swap? And I get asked that a lot because I, I guess that's been fairly successful for us. And we've, we've, kind of had a, a lot of growth and a lot of shoulder return. I said, the honest answer is this started over 10 years ago. A lot of the people that were our, our first investors, because I never went down the VC route. I think that a lot of VCs aren't you know, worth the paper they're written on and think that they run things, but realistically, they're just managing someone else's money and you know all of that. And again, a lot of startups think that when they get a VC that invests in them, that they're successful. But the whole game changes and you get controlled by them, but that's a different topic in, in general. So even though we have VCs now, we didn't want to go down there at the very start. And so the first investors that came on with us were people that I used to trade with and against in investment banking, you know, almost some of them rivals, we say. 
But I guess I, I always made a statement in how I did things. And I guess my word was my word. If I if I quoted someone a price on something, that was the price I'd stand up to it. There were days where I'd lose a lot of money doing it. You know, sometimes get asked to change my style. But I guess my style was as much integrity and honesty as I could have. And it served us well at the start of the company because it's people that I guess knew what I was going to be about and how I was going to do it. And that's now our whole wider team. They all think and do the same. And it's it's bigger than, hey, here's a bit of paper, here's a projection chart. You want to invest and I'll make you all of this money. It's a lot more because a lot of people will fail with it. A lot of people might lie with it. And it's about being as honest as you can. So it's saying that I guess I set out to kind of stick to those morals and that integrity years before Holiday Swap. And I, I guess I wouldn't say luckily, but thankfully it, it served us kind of well on that journey. So kind of looping the whole thing back in, I think that not only if people have seen that they are so intent that when times get tough, they're going to stick with. But a lot of the time, I think people that are successful, their journey starts way, way before. And sometimes it's it's digging on that, whether it's saying that you're so specialized or passionate in. Yeah. I mean, it, you, people that don't work in the tech industry may may not be able to understand just how, what a unique situation that puts you in 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 the tech world. I, I'm fortunate enough. I work at a, a bootstrap startup. My my full time job at a company called Doist, and we've never gone the VC route. Our CEO doesn't have an exit strategy. You know, the idea is to is to build a hundred year company, and and for all of us to play a part in that. And that's that's very unique. I mean, it's a using the word unicorn a little bit differently than we use it with normally with billion dollar valuations, but you do become kind of a unicorn in this space. And I think are very unique. You're, you're not, you know, you're not the norm because you haven't gone in the traditional VC route. And I think to do that, the reason I mention all that is because I think you have to have a very strong why for, in order to make that work. If, if your why isn't all the zeros in the bank account, then there has to be something else there. It's, it's very clear to me that Holiday Swap was a, a passion project for you, something that was connected to your identity as a world traveler and, and wanting to give this opportunity to people around the world. And that seems to be where it comes from. I would love to hear from you if you if that resonates with you. Maybe you say, no, that, that sounds like a bunch of bullshit, Chase. But if that resonates with you, I would love to hear you kind of articulate what your why is and what's motivating you to, to go this route with Holiday Swap. No, I completely resonate with it. I really do. And, and the why is... I think as I said, it's it's wanting to actually open up the world to more people. It it kind of connects in the conversation we had before about how I think and feel about globalization and, and people being connected. And uh, you know, again, it it can sound, I guess, a bit fluffy to say, but we are so similar. I remember being 18 and uh, you know, sat in in Vietnam on tiny little chairs when we were building homes, and every time we walk home, all the locals were inviting us for more and more dinners in their homes. And we were so full up, but it was kind of rude to say no. Uh, you know, we we're having these little cans of beer in, in this really rustic town. Monsoon was hitting. Uh, one of the guys like got uh, something hit him in the balls. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's holding them, like dropping to his knees in pain. And I remember everyone's laughing. I We couldn't speak a word of Vietnamese to these people and they couldn't speak a word of English. And we're all laughing still. And it's like, you know, so many things like that. It doesn't matter language, culture, some things are just the same in every language. And I remember that moment there was like, we are so similar in many ways. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're Vietnamese, Scottish, Americans, African, Chinese, whatever it is, that's just the same to everyone. That was kind of quite a quite an interesting moment. But it is because to connect and to, and to save money. And I guess 
I can't say too much about it, but the other real passion, obviously, in interloping with all of that is aviation. And we've got to a point now where we've actually branched off in a subsidiary and doing some stuff in, in aviation with aircraft. And, and that's so exciting. There's a Sim- lot I Similar say, concept? Like, uh, like no, swap? No. no, okay. Very, very different. Changing the game and kind of bringing back what aviation used to be. Uh, rather than getting a peanut or something and getting barked at because uh, you know you put your wheels on your bag the wrong way around in the overhead or something so yes there's it that is exciting so i guess look out for that but uh, the last few years i've um i'm not the most traveled and i'm certainly not my actual travel side of things is incredibly boring i might be in the Maldives or in New York or wherever. And I don't do anything touristy. I never get a chance to really immerse myself into any culture at all anymore. It's either, you know, somewhere head down, remote working, but being lucky enough to be in a beautiful place where kind of my mind's in a good place or moving around for meeting after meeting after meeting. So my my main thing is I live on a plane. So plane wise, even in 2020 and 2021, when no one was really traveling, I'm still taking over 200 flights each year international. And that's my home is is on a plane. So bringing it in and filtering in from the wider travel side, aviation is is really the one. And so it's I felt like a kid again with with what we're doing there. But again, it's only been allowed and I guess afforded to happen by us having our heads down and really pushing on with, with holiday swap. And it will complement it because yeah, the biggest cost of travel is accommodation, and the next biggest is your your tickets and transportation. Kind of comparing the binding rather the two. Yeah, I'm excited. Oh man. It's very, very cool. I'll be, I look forward to watching those things intertwine. I know I've only got you for a few more minutes. You're a busy man. I, I got one hour out of your 17 to 18 hour workday, which I'm su- super, super grateful for. So, so thank you no, for all this. Thank I'm, you, Chase. I, Chase, I, I thank wanted, you so much. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> uh, it, it, it has been my pleasure. Before I, I let you go, I just want to ask you a, a couple very quick questions just to share a little bit more information on Holiday Swap for, for people. Real quick, r- rough number of homes and countries that you guys are in, just to give people an idea about the breadth yeah we're in 184 countries now um, and we got over 3 million users so uh, it's uh, our, our ambitions i guess within the next six months we really want to scale at this point and we're looking to hit 10 million users we want to offer more and more options uh, more homes from everything from you know even even boats which we've had some of those on uh, on the platform and uh, from everything villas to you know one beds and studios and rooms and it's it's everything and anything that that it should and you want it to be. And it's just about affording more and more options for people. I think one of the things, if, if we're looking really critically at ourselves as well, is the, the kind of last minute aspect because money always talks as well. And if you go on a, a hotel site or homestay platform, should we say, it's, it's easy to put some money on the table and stay last minute if you're in a city. And I think that the more options that we have, it becomes more possible for that to happen. And we, we certainly want to be people's main main go-to for that because, again, the saving of the money and the more options just helps uh, with more users. Fantastic. And uh, and do people need to do simultaneous swaps or is there some form to allow people to travel to someone's home? Maybe someone's got a second home um, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, not anymore, actually. It used to be direct swapping. And and again, as you can probably tell, there's there's kind of big barriers to that you really need to be at a big enough stage um so a lot of people still do directly swap and, and that's really nice community wise but we've we've got tokens in the platform now uh not in a in a crypto way but it allows people to earn tokens you can value your place per night 50 100 200 tokens a token is worth a dollar and so you can receive that in your account and you can use them to go stay somewhere else so you could stay with that person on mismatched dates maybe if it's a second home 
or you could come stay at mine and I get the tokens and then I can use them to stay with someone else uh, if I'm not, uh, not coming to your place. So the tokens really kind of are the lifeblood of allowing more exchanges and between three-way exchanges or four-way or whatever it might be to, uh, to really happen. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. Where can people go? We'll put this all in the show notes as well. Where can people go to sign up? And uh, is there like a free trial or, or anything that people should be on the lookout for? Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, on the app stores, Apple App Store and Google Play Store, and uh, or you could help the website. And yeah, you, you can get a, a couple of week free trial, but you can also get, I, I don't even know the exact number, which I should probably find myself um, for, but I think it's about $200 worth of tokens. If you if you add your home and obviously you can earn from that already tokens, and use it to go exchange. I think, you know, there's a few steps that if you verify your account, which everyone will want to do because it's just another level of trust. But I think it's about $200 worth of tokens, which you can go and use immediately to go stay somewhere um, as well on it. If you if you just go sign up for free and complete those steps, so you don't need to be, you know, even subscribed on a trial. Usually users get the most and get the best and first available properties from doing it, but you can do it without and go and already be earning those uh tokens if, if you go and list your place up there it's it's the best way to do it uh fantastic i'm a i'm a big i mentioned this earlier but i'm a big fan of the concept i've done some some swaps it's great to see this being formalized in a place where you know you have those um, those verifications in place and it's not like a friend of a friend or, or so i mean you're you're actually providing the platform so that people can do these and, and feel safe about it and you can see the property that you're going to and it it just it solidifies everything and and i absolutely love what you're doing. So thanks for innovating on this space that we're all passionate about if we're listening to this. And, and thank you again for your time. And I wish I wish I got a million other questions about every country in the world that you've been to, but we'll we'll have to save that for another time. And so anyway, should thank we, you again, James. Should we do another one, Chase? I've loved this. <laughs> I believe so. You know, what's funny is I, I have, I had what I wasn't going to ask you the standard question about, you know, what was your favorite country? But I did have one question about a particular country that I saw that you visited. And um, so we'll have to sh- we'll save that for round two. You sure we, we we could we could squeeze it in maybe oh if you've got time i'm i'm game yeah let's squeeze it in <laughs> all right all right i'm not going to say the name of it i want to know about the very last country that you visited which was you know you you visited every single country in the world which don't quote what are there like there's 280 or something i can't remember the number so maybe you know the last country that you went to i want to know kind of how that became the last country, uh, where it was, and what your a quick a quick little overview of what your experience was like there. The last one was Micronesia in the middle of the South Pacific. Reason why the South Pacific countries were the first away from me in in the UK at the time, and pretty expensive to fly around them. And when I was kind of at college and doing overlanding through Africa and overlanding through South America, it was easier and cheaper to plan it and. So yeah, I kind of saved up money from working multiple jobs and thought I was some hotshot investor at 18 and made a bit of money in the financial crisis to pay for it. But I was at the same time self-funding it. So kind of running out of money or in some credit cards. And I guess when I moved into finance and I was still doing, trying to squeeze in as much as I could on the time I had off, the more expensive ones were in the South Pacific moving around. So I, I guess I saved those till last when I could afford it from the job that I had. So that's probably the most you know, platonic real reason why I did it. But I can actually picture today walking through immigration into the last country in Micronesia. And I I felt really sad because it it kind of been a part of me to do it for the last few years with this objective. And I walked through and I remember thinking, 
what now? You know, it's not like I got, I got like some fireworks or a fanfare or parade. And, you know, again, it was certainly kind of pre-Instagram and pre-social media. So it's not like anyone's there to kind of say, wow, that's a great accolade. And, and I didn't go to the press with it. The press actually kind of found out and I shut off. I didn't want to do any interviews or anything with it. And, you know, I, I didn't even set up an Instagram account. I think it took 2016 or 17. So I didn't want the exposure and that, and maybe I should have done, you know, maybe I could have a Netflix show like Zac Efron or something. But, you know, I was just kind of pretty happy to do my own thing at the time. And, you know, looking back, it was a bit odd walking through there and thinking, well, what should I do now? And, and then honestly, I probably think I sat there for the next, you know, two years, uh, just churning along in my investment banking job and probably been a little bit lost, if I'm honest. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I mean, there's something about the the letdown after you cross the finish line that's that's a very real thing. I mean, in fact, in in other aspects of life, it can send people into a really dark spiral trying to figure out, okay, what what's what's next, you know? And it's it's very yeah. cool to see that you dovetailed that off into something that that continues to motivate you. But that's you know not always the the case for everyone. It took me a while. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And was the, was the, the experience in the country of, in Micronesia a good one? I mean, I, I bet you if you ask the average person, they not only can't tell you exactly where it is, but like you, you couldn't identify, you know, what, okay, what is it about Micronesia? What's the food or the culture like? Or, you know, they just probably don't have a really great picture in their head. So did, did, did you walk away with a, a, you know, a positive experience? Oh, in- incredible. All of the South Pacific Islands were just so different when you when you delve into how the culture is and, and stunning and beautiful and, and very rustic in some ways. I remember trying to spear fish actually in, in Micronesia to catch my uh, my dinner and I wasn't very good at it. But um, yeah, I've had some phenomenal vet memories in the South Pacific. In, in Tuvalu, which was probably my favorite there, uh, they had one flight a week at the time. So again, I think some people that would try to kind of do the passport stamp things uh, we're, we're kind of on record for landing in and doing a complete 180, getting a stamp and flying out on the same flight and saying, oh, I've seen the country. Now, again, each to their own. But for me, I stayed there a week. And, you know, I remember landing and someone in the plane saying, there's the prison. Uh, and it was a tent with one person in there. There were no guards because everyone knows the one prisoner that was in there. And so it was just, it was like a throwback into a different era. And once that one flight leaves, the runway of the country, which takes up about probably a third of the whole country, is used as people. I remember having motorbike drag races up and down. People play football on it. They were playing volleyball and having nets up, and it was just insanely different. And then at night, because it's so hot and there's no aircon there, half the country drags their mattresses out onto the runway and sleeps there because you get the cool breeze that comes across it. And I will never forget how many stars I saw there. It's it's not even come close to seeing it. And being there, thinking this is just insane. It was incredible. Wow. So I look back at the South Pacific with really fond memories. Oh, no wonder you uh, you walked away a bit nostalgic. What a way to to end the journey! And it's it's going to be fun to continue to follow along where these uh, these next steps take you from here. James, I'll let you get back to to the real world. Thank you again so much. Uh, that was a fantastic way to end an already awesome conversation. Really, really appreciate it. Chase, I appreciate it so much, and thanks for inviting me to to come on and have a chat. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. For those of you wondering how you can best support the show, I have made it super simple for you. Just go over to the show notes of the episode that you just finished listening to and click on one of the two following links. Aboutabroad.com newsletter to get our monthly newsletter. No spam, guaranteed. Or 
ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad, where you can quickly and easily leave a review for the show. It's not just important to me, it also helps more wanderers just like you find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and we will see you again next week. Thanks again. Hasta luego, amigos.